Hello friends, happy Sunday and happy Easter. Today is the uh, the fifth Sunday of Easter season, of resurrection season. And uh, today's sermon comes to you from the broken down minivan on our driveway, which has been sitting here since January. Um, but which actually turns out to be a pretty, pretty good and more importantly, quiet recording space uh, to deliver this morning's sermon. So I, uh, I hope this mess- message finds you um, doing well, doing the best you can uh, through this challenging COVID-19 season. I hope you're able to uh, extend to yourself a lot of mercy and patience and grace um, through this difficult time. And uh, and when you fail at that, to be able to still extend to yourself uh, mercy and patience and grace. So um, I want to begin by talking about uh, discouragement and um, Specifically, I don't know about you, but I have been feeling uh, quite discouraged lately when um, when I read the news. And um, the news has, you know, been discouraging for for many reasons for many many years. But it, it just feels particularly in in this moment, um, not not even just in. Um, not even just the global health pandemic uh, that we're experiencing, but in in all the ways that uh, that this moment is bringing out um, some of the deeper ingrained problems of our country and our structures and systems, uh, I can't help but feel quite discouraged in the face of it all. Um, one poignant example of that was, uh, perhaps you saw the video that was released this week of Amand Arbery, who is a young African-American man out for a jog, um, back in February in Georgia, just went out for a jog in a white t-shirt and khaki shorts and a bandana and Nike shoes. And, uh, was jogging by two men, um, Gregory and Travis McMichael, who saw him and said that they uh, suspected that he looked like uh, the perpetrator of several armed robberies in in the neighborhood recently. And so they uh, got in their truck with a shotgun and with a pistol and uh, took up chase and um, the end result was uh, this young, unarmed black man um, being shot to death. And, uh, you know, I, I watched the video of it. Um, this happened back in February and no arrests um, were made until cell phone footage of this surfaced this week. And it was disturbing to watch, but I felt like it was important for me at least to watch this, to, to feel disturbed by this, to, to let myself be affected by it, because this isn't something that has just happened this one time, but something that happens again and again and again, and um, sometimes get, 
gets caught on video and put before the world for the world to see. Um, and I couldn't help just feel discouraged partly by just how, just how stupid the whole thing is, just how needless and pointless. And, uh, I just couldn't help but feel the sense of like, why does this have to happen? Why does something like this have to exist in our world? Um, his obituary described him. He would have been 26 on Friday. And his obituary just said of him that he was humble, kind, and well-mannered. And that he always made sure he never departed from his loved ones without saying, I love you. His mother, I uh, was asked if she had watched the video and she said no. She said, my son came into the world. I saw my son come into the world and seeing him leave the world is not something that I'll ever want to see ever. And, uh, you know, just reflecting on that again is one poignant example of deeper problems in our country that are coming to the surface. And, and perhaps you got a chance to read the, the article in the Atlantic that was shared in the Friday email from the anti-racism team, um, which is called, we're still living and dying in the slaveholders Republic. Um, it, it, it just reflects on some of the stats, uh, of the, disproportionate rates in which African-Americans and other people of color are being um, affected and dying as a result of COVID-19 and how, how again, we see through this crisis, like many, um, the least of these in our midst, um, bearing the brunt, bearing the sufferer, suffering um, of a communal crisis uh, at a disproportionate rate while people of privilege um, enjoy a certain amount of distance from that suffering. And uh, I imagine that you, many of you too, feel a lot of this discouragement. And so I want to just um, bring to us some encouragement from First Peter. And as, as I read through and reflected uh, and kind of sat with Peter's letter here throughout this week, um, I, I began to see a lot of the parallels between the people that Peter wrote to and their discouragement in their time and us uh, as the church today. Um, so just quick context about First Peter. So Peter is writing to uh, these young believers, they seem to be recent Gentile converts um, that he compares a couple times to being like infants, like newborn babies. Um, and these young believers are scattered throughout uh, provinces of Asia Minor. And they are in crisis. Um, they are suffering persecution because of their faith. Um, and I wonder if perhaps they were feeling powerless uh, before a great global empire whose values and actions, structures and systems so often felt at odds with their Christian faith. Perhaps you might 
uh, even say that they felt at a loss for how to even begin to respond to the injustice that surrounded them. Injustice perpetrated by the powerful against the powerless. And so there are these discouraged Christians in crisis in the midst of this unjust global empire. And so Peter decides to write to them. And he writes a letter to encourage them. And in this letter, he reminds them of two things. First, he reminds them of their identity. And second, he reminds them of their vocation. He reminds them of who they are and of how they are to be in the world. And so uh, we'll just kind of go through these two things, identity and vocation, and what God might have to say to us at Sherman Street Church um, on this day through these words of Peter. Um, it really is a wonderful letter if you get the chance uh, to, to read through it um, today or this week. I encourage you to do so. Um, but right off the bat, you know, you can often get a sense of, of what a letter is going to be about from the very first um, sentence in the body of the letter. And so the letter starts, you know, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and on and on. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then he says this in verse 3. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, here it is, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God, Peter begins, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the interpretive key, you might say, that uh, to our identity, that existence in Christ through resurrection is the foundation of Christian identity and practice. And so Peter reminds them of who they are by saying to them, you are a people of resurrection, born into a community of resurrection, which means you are a people for whom evil and death will not get the last word. And uh, he goes on in his letter, and our, our section today comes from chapter 2. Um, and it's, you know, at first I got to admit it was kind of frustrating because because Peter's mixing all these different metaphors and um, I couldn't help but feel like come on Peter just pick a metaphor stick with it he, he begins with in verse 2 like newborn babies he has this image of us like newborn babies uh, he says crave pure spiritual milk which is uh, to crave the Lord now that you have tasted, he says that the Lord is good and then he switches metaphors to now we're not babies he says come to him Jesus, the living stone, so now Jesus is the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. And then he says, you also, again, identity, are like living stones being built into a temple of God 
So now we are living stones being constructed into a holy temple built on the foundation of Christ. To be, he says, a holy priesthood. So now we're priests, now we're mediators between God and the world, offering spiritual sacrifices, he says, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes on and on and on and uh, brings up a couple more images. You are a chosen people, he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And, and all, you know, this, this piling on of different metaphors, of different images. One scholar, uh, Shively Smith, she says, this piling on of images is, to, is encouraging readers, she says, to imagine the boundless possibilities of Christian existence in light of Christ's life. I'll say that again. The piling on of metaphors is encouraging readers to imagine the boundless possibilities of Christian existence in light of Christ's life. For she says, no one metaphor captures everything there is to say about resurrection. Christ has risen from the dead. He has risen indeed. And this means all sorts of possibilities for those whose life is found in him. And so Peter is piling on image after image after image. This is who you are, says Peter. Resurrection people. So church, be who you are. So he covers identity and then he covers second vocation because identity flows out of or because identity from identity flows vocation. And so again, verse nine, notice this, uh, these identity images, right? But, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. And then here it is, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are a chosen people, he says, that you may declare. You know, sometimes this, this language of, of being a chosen people gets gets framed in terms of privilege that to be God's chosen people is is to somehow be uh chosen by God to enjoy all these riches that that others don't and while uh there's certainly uh some truth in that chosenness really is uh as much about responsibility as it is privilege to be God's chosen people is to be a people chosen and set apart by God for the sake of the whole world. God's mission of redemption, God's great rescue plan, the storybook Bible says, for all of creation has always been universal in scope. And God's people have always been blessed that they might be a blessing they have been rescued. We have been rescued from darkness to light that we may go and declare and in doing so invite others to participate in God's redemption of all things. God's work of taking things from death 
into light. And just how are they to engage the world? Well, Peter says, through the pattern of Christ, of course. From our identity flows this vocation to engage the world, to bring about resurrection as resurrection people. And we do this through the pattern of Christ, who Peter says, also like you suffered evil and injustice, and yet chose to respond not in retaliation, but in love. And you know, I, I realized, I've studied First Peter before, but reading it again and again and again this week, which is one of the ways that I, it's one of my professors uh, in seminary said, um, Maxine Hancock said, this is how she, she comes to, to feel the bones of a letter, to just read it again and again and again and again. I started to realize that, that First Peter is really all about the subversive form of engagement uh, through nonviolence and creative forms of nonviolence. This is the pattern of Christ. And this is the way that we, as uh, followers of Christ, as people in his footsteps, as resurrection people following the resurrected Lord, this is how we too are to engage the world. Not in retaliation, Peter says, but in love. Love is the bottom line. There's a, you know, right before our section, there's this imperative in which Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. And then again, later in chapter four, in case you missed it, above all, he says, when someone says above all, it means this is very important. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. This kind of love, this uh, self-sacrificing uh, love that is willing to lay itself down for the sake of the common good uh, was perhaps embodied in no better uh, 20th century prophet than this man, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And um, this is a testament of hope, the essential writings and speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. And I've, I've been reading some of his uh, sermons recently. And I just want to share with you uh, some of the last lines of, of one of his famous sermons called The Drum Major Instinct, which he had preached just uh, a couple months before his assassination. Um, he's reflecting on his, he's saying from time to time, I think about, uh, my funeral and wonder what people might say about me at my funeral. Uh, and he says this, he says, what is it that I would want said? He says, tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. 
I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. He says, of all the other shallow things that will not matter, I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind, but I just want to leave a committed life behind. You know what's uh, nice about this is that um, that we don't have to be the architect. Uh, we don't have to be the ones who create a plan for how God is going to redeem this world. God is the great architect. God has a good and marvelous plan, the scriptures say. Um, and our job, uh, we are not the architect, we are not the builder, we are not the foundation that is Christ. Uh, we are the living stones. And so, uh, just like Martin Luther King Jr. had said, there's, there's this almost simplicity to, uh, we offer our lives one day at a time, one moment in a t in t one moment at a time, uh, seeking to love, seeking to be faithful, to be a people who are just and honest, um, people who steward our money and our power and whatever voice we have, our time, our energy towards God's redemption of all things, towards a more just way of being in the world. And through all of our tiny acts of faithfulness, God, the great architect, takes, takes these things and builds with our lives a temple that houses for the world, that shows the world, that manifests in the world the very spirit of God. And so, people of Sherman Street Church, be encouraged today. Yes, there are plenty of opportunities, plenty of reasons, plenty of things on the news uh, that remind us of how far we yet have to go uh, in this world to be a place of justice, of peace, of shalom, of goodness for all God's people. But be encouraged that, that the good architect uh, has a plan and know who you are and what you are called to be. People of resurrection and trust that in every small way, God will bring about and build these things into something marvelous and good. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that, uh, that you are the great architect and that uh, though it's tempting to uh, get overwhelmed um, by all the evil and injustice and death and sickness and everything else in the world. Lord, we thank you that um, all you ask of us is that we would be uh, loving and faithful in each moment. And so God, do that in us, your church, uh, each day in small ways, um, even from home.
may we uh, give our best to you today and this week to live uh, as people of hope, people of love, um, of resurrection people, Lord, trusting that you will take all this and construct it into something glorious and good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.